Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a story from Sarah Harowitz, who reflects on her reading habit and also shares more about a novel that slipped her down. Here's more from Sarah. My name is Sarah Harowitz, and I'm the editor-in-chief of Natural Habitat magazine. Produced by home scenting company Vitruvi, Natural Habitat explores the ways in which we feel at home, in our bodies, in our spaces, and in our world. We just launched our first print issue, which for me is one big love letter to the art of slowing down. When I need to slow down, I almost always turn to a magazine or a book. Reading forces me out of my head. It's an act of exploration, of escape, and of letting go. I recently finished Matrix by Lauren Groff, a novel about the determined life of a 12th century nun. It's an incredible book by a masterful author, and the whole thing has honestly haunted me. But one passage in particular really stood out. It reads... Fine then, she thinks with bitterness, she will stay in this wretched place and make the best of the life given her. She will do all that she can to exalt herself on this worldly plane. She will make those who cast her out sorry for what they've done. One day, they will see the majesty she holds within herself and feel awe. For me, this quote is about patience and perseverance. I often get ahead of myself, thinking about plans and projects and goals that are far in the future. And while it's definitely necessary to dream, it's also important to focus on the present and to recognize that big things take time. The nun in Matrix understands this. She knows that while in the moment she may feel small, the day will come when she grows as mighty as she knows she can be. It's a reminder for me to slow down, to be patient, and to focus on the beauty of the here and now. Thank you so much again to Sarah for sharing. Again, the book she mentioned is Matrix by Lauren Groff. Now here's my conversation with Katie Kitamura. What does it mean to belong and what responsibilities come with belonging? These questions were top of mind while reading Katie Kitamura's stunning novel, Intimacies. In Intimacies, readers are presented with a rich examination of language, power, and identity seen through the lens of an unnamed narrator who has arrived in The Hague to interpret at the international court. But as the narrator's story unfolds, readers witness the manipulation of language and self as the narrator tries to reconcile her role as an interpreter and participant in the story shaping the spaces around her. For Katie, distance and perspective are often top of mind in her writing process, but in the case of intimacies, Katie's work also provokes deeper reflection about the relationship between time and choices, and how the decisions we make ultimately inform how we interpret and navigate the complicated landscapes of our personal, professional, and romantic lives. As Katie writes early on in Intimacies, there were great chasms beneath words, between two or sometimes more languages that could open up without warning. As interpreters, it was our job to throw down planks across these gaps. In this way, Katie's work reminds us that even if words escape us, a form of intimacy can still remain. We just have to slow down enough to recognize and honor it. 
And in this interview, Katie shared more about the research and writing process behind intimacies, her thoughts on the relationship between grief and power, and how pace has evolved in her creative practice. Speaking with Katie reinforced the kind of intimacy that only a writer with a certain level of self-awareness and grace could elicit, especially after a period of isolation, and I don't want to give too much more away. So with that said, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Katie Kitamura, author of Intimacies. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here and talking with you. And this is such an interesting question to me because I found when you first kind of gave me a sense of what the conversation would be about, I had trouble thinking of an answer, which in part is, I think, because for me, so much of being a writer is not simply what happens when I sit down at my laptop and I am writing or editing or doing any of those things. So much of it is about a relationship to the world and to experiencing the world around me. And so in that sense, I think there's not a kind of clear distinction between who I am as a person and who I am as a writer in the sense that I think I write because it helps me understand the world and it helps me to experience the world in some way. So that may not be that may not be the best introduction to who I am, but I think that's the most honest one that I have of who I am outside of being a writer. I mean, I can give you a sense of kind of biographical landscape of my life. You know, I live with my family in Brooklyn. I'm mother to two children and I'm married to another writer. And, you know, we really spent all of the past 18 months or so in our home in Brooklyn during the pandemic. So we're very much a family unit right now. But yeah, so much of what I experience about the world and so much of what I know about the world comes to me through that filter of writing. Do you keep a diary? I don't keep a diary and I find a lot of writers do. My husband, for example, kept a diary during the entire pandemic. And I think it's now kind of seven notebooks full of notes about his daily experience. I find that the things that I write down are much more sporadic and jagged and they are really fragments. I'm also always interested in the things that don't go away, the things that stick in my mind. And this is maybe a little bit related to the kind of subject matter of this podcast. But, you know, the thing that returns, the thing that has a kind of circularity, the thing that I can't shake off, those are the details that I'm most interested in, certainly in my work. And so those are the things that I, I kind of trust that they'll come back to me, that they'll stay with me, that my subconscious will keep hold of them for me. So I don't keep a diary in that sense. I mean, I take photographs, you know, just on my phone all the time, particularly of my children, of course, but just in general. And I think those are almost my visual diary in some sense. That's the closest thing I would say I have to a diary. Yeah, that's really interesting. As you kind of think about the stories or the memories that have stayed with you, I'm curious if there is a story that you've come across, whether it's been something you've been working on or an article, a poem, a book that has made you slow down or impacted your relationship with intimacy, art, or language. I mean, something that I've become really interested in lately is the idea of how we might imagine the subjectivity of non-human life. (laughs) That sounds a bit obscure and abstracted. But for example, I recently read Elif Shafak's new novel. She has long sections of that novel that are written from the point of view of a tree. And that was really interesting to me. And I spoke to her about it. And something she said to me is, you know, tree time is different from human time. And that really stayed with me because I think something that I find myself thinking about a lot when I'm writing is perspective and 
distance and how that organizes our experience, how close we are to things and how far away we are from things. You know, when she was talking about trying to access tree time, I realized she was describing not just a different experience of temporality, but also a different perspective. And that's very interesting to me. So that book is one which is Elif Shafak's The Island of the Missing Trees. So in some ways, it tells a very human story, which is a kind of love story during a politically turbulent time. But what was interesting to me was her ability to kind of invoke a different temporality. And that is something that I feel I have not done in my fiction really today. And that's something that's really interesting to think about. I'm also really interested and have been reading more of the work of an anthropologist and a historian of science called Sophia Ruth, who really troubles distinctions. I feel like that is everything that her work is involved in. You know, so she's currently working on the border between life and non-life and kind of the fact that there are so many different definitions, for example, biologically speaking, of death, and that these categories of living and dead are actually not fixed. And things that we, a virus, for example, you know, it's very hard to know if that is either living or dead as an organism. So that kind of troubling of these categories, I think is something that helps me think about time in a non-human sense, which is probably not the same thing as slowing down time, but I feel somehow is very, very related. Have I been going on for too long? (laughs) Should I stop? No, not at all. Have these works come to you or how have you found yourself within these subjects? Yeah, I mean, I think I've really been seeking them out. And now I'm actively, you know, this has become the kind of new rubric for a lot of the reading that I'm doing right now. So I'm reading quite a lot about trees. And obviously, Richard Powers is a figure for that. There's also this very popular German book called The Hidden Life of Trees. I don't know if you've read it, but it's all about how trees communicate with each other. And that is also a really nice book that just helps, you know, change your assumptions about the kind of texture of the world that you're moving through. I'm also reading a little bit of a philosopher called Timothy Morton, who has, I've just started actually, but he's written a book called Humankind, which is a book that kind of questions why we privilege the subjective positions of humans so much over other living organisms or even objects. And obviously for a fiction writer, especially a fiction writer like me, I, you know, I've written two novels that are in a very human first person I narrative. Those kinds of questions feel very, very productive to me to think about. And the last book that I would say has been really thought-provoking, which I, again, have only just started, is Ruth Ozeki's The Book of Form and Emptiness. That's a book that, again, a little bit like Elif Safak's book, is, is a book that has a very human story at the heart of it, but that kind of is able to expand its parameters. And it's the story of a mother and a son who are grieving the loss of their father and husband. And the little boy is starting to experience all the objects around him are talking to him. And the book is narrated by the book itself so it's very interesting kind of talking objects speaking objects and again this is so different from the register that I write in but I think that's always very useful for me as a reader to read things that are so different and those are the things that really provoke a response in me so I think there's some kind of link I'm not quite articulating it very well and I'm more intuiting it but I feel like there's a link between escaping the kind of boundary around human experience and experiencing time differently Absolutely. And it seems in that regard, it's almost like the unexpected sense of perspective is sort of a reminder to pay attention because who would ever think to pay attention from the perspective of a tree or of a toy or of a book? (laughs) 
And I think that's so integral to slowing down and really making the most of the time that we have, especially in a reading or writing context. And it's so interesting to hear you talk about the hidden life of trees. I think that's come up at least twice already on this podcast. So imagine. Yeah, I think there is a real relationship, as you say, between awareness or the kind of tension Mm -hmm. of awareness and kind of shifting the boundary around time, around temporality as we experience it. And, you know, that's something I find myself more and more interested in is trying to find the focus that you, it actually requires quite a lot of focus, I think, to allow time to dilate a little bit and it's quite hard to do I don't know I mean I'd love to hear how you experience that when you try to access this kind of different you know outside of the everyday (laughs) treadmill of life but when you're accessing that other kind of slow time I find there's a real relationship between attention and there is a kind of tension in that and being able to access that dimension It's definitely a practice. It's one I've been slowly, more than learning, I feel like I've been unlearning a lot of the habits that sort of informed how I moved through the world. And it was really a buildup of overextending myself and my resources to kind of meet the needs of external validation. I grew up personally and professionally being sort of indoctrinated in the ways of the digital age. And so slow stories is really in reaction to a lot of the things that I need to recalibrate away from, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. I mean, it does. We're really trained to be productive workers in a way and to be able to, at the end of the day, look back and look at the things that you've accomplished. And I find myself doing that all the time. I mean, even just now before, you know, I logged on to talk to you, I was going over in my head the things that I'd gotten out of the way this morning, the tasks that I'd achieved. But a lot of those, as you say, are to some extent self-imposed. I remember when I was in my 20s, I worked with a documentary filmmaker called Sophie Fines, who in turn had worked with a choreographer called Michael Clark, a dancer and a choreographer. And he's a really very brilliant choreographer and creator. And I think she is, Sophie is is self-taught and extremely driven and extremely smart. And I think she's probably not unlike us in that she had been taught certain standards of productivity. And I remember she told me that working with Michael was really a process of unlearning a lot of that and that, you know, he could be incredibly productive and, and make a new piece. And then there would be a week when he would barely get out of bed. And he would say that just part of the process is sometimes you have to let things lie fallow, including yourself. <laughs> and your mind and let things rest. And I think she really taught me a lot about that. I was very much, you know, somebody as a younger person who was very academically driven, and I was very driven by reaching goals, meeting standards. And I think it was really only in my 20s that I started to actively unlearn all of that behavior. And I don't think it's a coincidence that at the same time as I was unlearning that, that I actually started to write fiction and then became a writer. I think those two things really went hand in hand that there was this kind of sense in which you know what's often referred to as wasting time is actually so central to any creative practice and is actually incredibly productive well that makes me really happy to hear because my original plan was to become a writer and life kind of unfolded in another direction and now I find myself opening up that side again Mm -hmm. so gives me a little bit of hope (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 
I think all of the things that you naturally have to do in order to observe the world in the way you're describing are the exact same tools that a writer uses. Again, this quality of attention. I think that's one of the things that makes a writer or makes a lot of writers. I don't want to generalize. Obviously, there are writers who pass through the world in a very different way and make work in a very different way. But certainly for me, you know, that period in my 20s where I didn't really achieve that much, but I absorbed a lot was really important to being able to start writing. I love to hear that. And obviously on the subject of writing, I want to make sure that we talk about intimacies. I think it was easily my favorite read of the year. Oh, thank you. I didn't really know what to expect going into it, but I saw that Sanai Lemoyne, who wrote The Margot Affair, and who's also been on Slow Stories, shared a little bit about it online, and I take anything she recommends. Oh, that's lovely. And as we're kind of talking about stories that stay with us, I was actually thinking about one of my earlier interviews from this year with another writer. Her name is Becky Cooper, and she wrote this incredible work of nonfiction called We Keep the Dead Close, Mm -hmm. and it investigates an unsolved murder of a Harvard graduate archaeology student. But more than the case itself, she sort of examines the systems of power that influence how we tell and remember stories. And within that exploration, she also shows what happens to a story when it's interpreted or passed down through generations or communities, especially within a particular context or structure. In that case, the kind of Ivy League closed off world. And during our talk, she also quoted an anthropologist named Vina Doss, who I think is also in the book. And I feel like you'll appreciate this quote, but she said that some realities need to be fictionalized in order to be apprehended. And so I say all that to say, one, I highly recommend this book. It sounds incredible. But also as a writer, what do you think writing fiction in particular can bring to explorations of themes like language, relationships, and power in a way that maybe nonfiction can't, if that makes sense? It absolutely does. And it's such an interesting question. You know, I think one of the things that fiction is very good at is looking at the relationship between the individual and the institution or the larger social structure. And I think it's not only good at narrativizing what it is like to be an individual caught within a larger structure, whether it's an Ivy League university or a court of law or the justice system, whatever it might be, but also at kind of mining the gap between individual experience and collective experience in a productive way. So I I think that is probably something that fiction is very, very good at. And I find that in nonfiction, it often is very successful when it uses some of the shared techniques of fiction in order to tell an individual story. I think that's a register in which nonfiction also can do that very, very well. But I think what I, what I like about fiction and the reason I like writing fiction is because it's not just telling the story of individual experience. It's telling the story of individual experience in the context of a larger social context and structure. And it's thinking about how it rubs up against that, you know, where are there irreconcilable gaps that can't really be bridged? For me, that's kind of where fiction comes up. It's a really interesting way to look at it. And I think that's true in terms of reading. The reading experience of fiction allows for that introspection a little bit more. And in terms of intimacies, can you give us a little overview of how you arrived at this story? Yeah. So the novel is set at a war crimes tribunal in The Hague, and it is told from the point of view of a woman who has moved from New York to the Netherlands. So she's a kind of new arrival to the city. And it's really the story of 
of her navigating this new landscape, both politically, personally, and in her kind of romantic life, and, and trying to find a point of stability. And for a long time, the book's title was Terra Firma, and it was really a novel that was very invested in the idea of exploring instability and, and what that feels like and whether that can be sustainable. And the starting point for the novel really was in a very precise event. You know, when you were asking me earlier if I kept a journal and I was saying I kind of just let things float around and see what sticks. I mean, this is one of those things that just stuck and I couldn't shake it. And I went back and I looked at the date when it took place and it was 2009. So it was a long time before I started writing the novel, but it was when I was, I can remember very specifically, I was in California in a car and I was listening to the radio and I heard Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia, speaking at his own trial in The Hague. And he was very renowned as an orator and a very effective speaker. And there was something that was really troubling to me because even as I could recognize that his argument was absurd and self-serving and grandiose and offensive, all of those things, at the same time, I could recognize that there was some essential persuasion in his way of speaking and that he was able to manipulate language and narrative very, very effectively. And that for a writer is always a very interesting moment when you see that the manipulation of language which is what we rely on, you know, kind of as one of our tools, as part of our trade, that can be turned in directions that are beyond morally questionable. So I felt like that there was something there that I wanted to think about in a novel. And I came back to it really, if not quite a decade later, many, many years later. And then I did some research and I spent some time at the International Criminal Court in The Hague. And, and, and slowly the book kind of started to come into focus. Yeah, there's so much that you deal with so elegantly in terms of power, art. Something else that kind of sets the tone of the narrator's story is grief. She's yes. just getting over the passing of her father, or she's just moved after the passing of her father. And I'm curious in what ways writing about grief is the same as writing about power, or if you see a connection between the two. Because I think in terms of talking about paying attention, grief sort of forces you to pay attention to things that you just can't turn away from. I love that question. I mean, you're completely right. My father, in fact, died not that long after I heard that clip on the radio of Charles Taylor speaking. And I'm now wondering, as you were speaking, if there was some kind of correlation. I absolutely agree. I remember sitting beside my father on his deathbed as he was dying. And I remember the one thing I thought was there's nothing I can do for you now, but I can witness this moment very fully and I can pay attention to everything that is happening and make sure that it's seen, you know, which is on the on one level completely meaningless to him. <laughs> But I remember that impulse towards absolute attention and absorption, which I think, as you say, is a very big part of grief. And, and of course, you know, when somebody, as my father was, has been ill for a long time, the process of grief is in many ways anticipatory. You know, it begins before the person is actually gone. So I remember that kind of sense of almost electric sense of attention in my body as I was with him. And I suppose I would say that one of the things about grief is that it's stubborn and it's recalcitrant, and it can't be reasoned with. And I think so many of the structures of power that regulate our behavior really butt up against that. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine, Megan O'Rourke, who wrote a book about her mother's cancer and subsequent death, and about her grief. And our parents, her mother and my father, died at about the same time. And I remember her saying, you know, it's almost as if people produce a schedule for grief. 
And if you're still grieving beyond the allocated time, there's almost a sense that you're not a functioning member of society anymore. And when we say not a functioning member of society, we obviously mean you're not like really being a productive member of society because you're still caught up in this debilitating emotion. You know, a year later, two years later, you know, what people feel is too long. And it's amazing how rapidly people can actually start to feel like your grief is in some way unbecoming. So I think there's something real about how grief challenges power in some way because it is so overwhelming and it can make you an outcast, but there's also incredible power in grief. As much as grief poses a kind of challenge to power, I think there's also incredible power in grief. And that's something that I've been thinking about a lot over the past 18 months or so and how there's a kind of, particularly when it's collectivized, there's real urgency in that because as I say, it is it is stubborn and it is unreasonable and it has its demands that have to be met in some way you know it it can't be pacified in some way so yeah I think the question of what is a relationship between grief and power those are my initial thoughts on it but it's a really good question and it's a really complicated question Um, so that's just my first response I'm sure if I thought about it more I would have other things to say I ask about it too, just because you think about the other characters in Intimacies, particularly Adrian, who's sort of in this maybe pre-grief stage of mourning his marriage. Just thinking about these kind of micro moments where, as you say, you have to anticipate those periods of transformation. I think there is a sense of intimacy within that. And zooming out even further, what I found really interesting about this book is how intimacy is established in the environments from the narrator's friends or lovers' apartments to the intensity of the courthouse. It's interesting to me that none of these spaces are ones that the narrator can truly call her own, but she has such moments of clarity in them. It's almost like the lack of belonging kind of allows her to rebuild intimacy with herself. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I knew that I wanted the narrator to not have access to spaces that felt like a home to her in some way, you know, that she would really be marked as a transient person. You know, she's living in temporary accommodation. She's living with things that don't belong to her. And I wanted her to have, I guess, partial access or be able to visit in places that are very much people's homes with people who know how to create spaces that feel like home and kind of have that strange experience. I don't know if you've ever had it of being inside the room, but feeling yourself to be outside the room in some way to still be an observer. But I'm so interested and I think you're absolutely right that you included the courtroom in that space as well, because I think one of the things that I found myself thinking about as I wrote the book and certainly once the final title was Intimacies, was the different forms that intimacy takes. And obviously some of them are very positive and some of them are necessary to existing in the world, but a lot of them in the book at least are negative or unwanted or undesired. And I think one of those is certainly the closeness that takes place even within the very formal setting of the courtroom, the fact that all of these people who are often on opposing sides of a event or a narrative are brought into close contact with each other. And in one of the scenes in the book, a young woman who has lost her family in the violence that has taken place in the country of the former president who the narrator is interpreting for. You know, the the fact that she has to enter into the courtroom and being in the presence of this man who has caused the death of her family is, as you say, a kind of intimacy, but it's a terrible intimacy. So I had thought a lot about the domestic spaces, but I hadn't thought in terms of intimacy, but I hadn't thought that much of that space of the courtroom in terms of intimacy. I thought it primarily in terms of power. 
and how that space organizes and gives power. But when you ask about it in the context of intimacy, I see it differently. And I think you're absolutely right. There's another space that to me also kind of signaled a turning point in the book. And it's the space of an art gallery during an exhibition opening where the narrator studies a painting that mirrors so much of what you explore throughout the entire novel. And I'd love to have you talk about this aspect more but maybe we can have you read a passage from that scene first. Yeah, of course. So this scene takes place at the Moritz House in The Hague, which has a number of classic Dutch Golden Age paintings. And in particular, in this passage, the narrator is struck by a painting called The Proposition by a female painter called Judith Leister. The artifice of their poses was evident, but that did not detract from the intimacy of the paintings. In fact, it was a very active posing, the relationship that act implied, that created the sense of uncanny familiarity. In some cases, they were clearly posing for the painter. They gazed into what I thought of as the lens or camera eye, although, of course, that concept was an anachronism. They would have been gazing not into an apparatus, but directly at the painter himself. The idea was almost impossibly personal, and I realized the notion of such a sustained human gaze was outside the realm of experience today. For that reason, the painting opened up a dimension that you did not usually see in photographs. In these paintings, you could feel the weight of time passing. I thought that was why, as I stood before a painting of a young girl in half-light, there was something that was both guarded and vulnerable in her gaze. It was not the contradiction of a single instant, but rather it was as if the painter had caught her in two separate states of emotion, two different moods, and managed to contain them within the single image. There would have been a multitude of such instants captured in the canvas, between the time she first sat down before the painter and the time she rose, neck and upper body stiff, in the final sitting. That layering, in effect a kind of temporal blurring, or simultaneity, is perhaps ultimately was what distinguished painting from photography. I wondered if that was the reason why contemporary painting seemed to me so much flatter, to lack the mysterious depth of these works, because so many painters now work from photographs. I moved to the next painting, which depicted a young woman seated beside a table, her face illuminated by the flame from a candle, her broad forehead and rounded cheeks bathed in golden light, the crisp folds of her white blouse almost blinding. The painter's use of chiaroscuro was particularly striking, at least to my inexpert eye. I could not describe its precise characteristics, I knew only that it was as if the light had been rendered three-dimensional, extending past the frame of the painting until the canvas itself seemed to be the source of illumination. A man stood behind the young woman, leaning against a table in a pose that was casual and raffish, somehow off-putting. He seemed to infringe upon her personal space, although personal space was not a phrase that could have occurred to the young woman. Another anachronism. I love that passage. And oh, thank you. Of course, yeah. What was interesting to me about this is that in this particular instance, your dealings with language were visual. Everything and nothing is said in that painting. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, Slow Stories really explores this sort of tension of telling stories in our digital world, which can often deal with what it means to interpret what is said in the unsaid. So in visuals, in subtweets, and so on. And <laughs> intimacy obviously takes place in a contemporary landscape. But I'm curious about how this particular moment in time influenced the central themes, because you don't really talk overtly about the digital aspect. I would imagine that was sort of in mind throughout writing. Mm -hmm. 
thank you so much for saying all those kind things about the book, about that section. You know, the scene in the museum was, for me, the funnest thing in the book to write. It was a real pleasure for me. And I knew I always wanted it in the middle of the book as a kind of little hinge, but also a moment when I could step out of the kind of almost real-time intensity of the storytelling and kind of take a breath in a way which felt important for the book. It's also probably the biggest time jump that happens in the novel is in that scene. And so I think I knew intuitively that I wanted to change the setting. I wanted to change the temporality a little bit. And I think I ended up talking about time for that reason in relationship to these paintings. And one of the things that the novel is concerned with, or that I wanted to think about, was a way that although we live in this very kind of contemporary moment with this emphasis on what is happening now, on this kind of present day, present tense experience, you know, history is shaping everything that we experience now, and it constantly kind of gives beneath your feet. And so one of the things about the Moritz house is that it was founded by a colonizer, and it's literally the house of a slave trader. And that is a legacy that I think more recently the institution has taken on and addressed. At the time when the book is set, which is 2016, there are slow rumblings about that, but it wasn't yet really fully something that was contextualized and given full consideration. And I think I was interested in the fact that you can be doing something that feels very of this moment you know, going to an art opening, whatever it is. But the history is there. And, and when it's unconsidered, when it's not addressed, when it's not contextualized, there's a real danger to that. And of course, so much of what the novel is concerned with is thinking about how various institutions, including kind of international criminal justice system, has its own biases that are a product of these very, very long histories and accumulations of power. So I think one of the reasons why I wanted to write that scene was just to show how whatever the institution, whether it's a court of law or a museum, because of course a museum is, is an institution, you know, it's really an institution, it's a gatekeeping institution, it says what to look at and how to look at it. It's important to think about the history of how that institution came into being and how those biases might be integrated into that history. You know, I think it's a lot of it is structural. It's not simply changing the personnel. It, it's really fundamental to the structure of the institution in a lot of ways. And in that sense, it's really quite difficult to address. But I think, you know, recognizing that difficulty is certainly a first step. I was also just thinking about the element of performance that you were exploring throughout the book, too. And I just was suddenly realizing in this museum scene, there's a kind of little bit of a joke, I suppose, but there's an exhibition. She, she's there for the opening of an exhibition that's called Slow Food. It's a collection of Dutch still life paintings of food which I think was a real exhibition, actually. But there's an invented performance piece in it, which is a food artist who makes replicas of the paintings, the food paintings, but they're kind of tableaus of actual food that are set in empty frames so that the guests at the opening can reach through and eat the food. And I think, you know, part of the play on that was really the fixed rigidity of the time of a painting uh, versus something that is there in order to be consumed and to decay and to be broken apart. So I think that those two different versions of time were something that were at play in the exhibition. So I, be, I think because you said the word performance, I suddenly thought about that kind of performance art piece. It makes sense. You know, you interrogate so much just in your role as a writer 
And in terms of the process of collecting real life insights, I would imagine that requires asking a lot of questions. And so first, what questions did you ask the interpreters that you spoke with or any other sources who helped lay the groundwork for some of the characters in this book? And then if you were to reflect on those answers now, what would you ask them as a follow-up? I think for me, a lot of doing research interviews is asking questions, but it's also observation of behaviors. And so I think one of the first things that I realized when I interviewed a number of simultaneous interpreters, you know, who are working in this courtroom setting was that they were very charismatic people. They were persuasive people. They were performers. And that was not how I had conceptualized the character up until that point. I had really thought about the characters being almost self-effacive in some way. And then I realized when I talked to these interpreters and I observed them and I, you know, and I, and I was very drawn to them. They're very compelling people. They've been exposed to and they've experienced something that the vast majority of people will never experience. I understood that I would need to constantly recalibrate and make this idea of performance more central. A lot of what I asked them were very technical questions initially. I wanted to get things right. I think it's important to get things as right as you possibly can to the best of your ability. So I asked a lot of technical questions about interpretation, but I'm sure you know how this is. When you're interviewing somebody, you don't always feel like you can immediately ask a very personal question. But they were surprisingly happy to talk about the psychological cost of the work they were doing. And that was something that I had not realized, I think, when I sat down to interview them and then came up again and again, the stress of the work, the strain of this constant exposure to extremely troubling material, how destabilizing it was to be put into proximity with people who were being accused of war crimes, you know, crimes against humanity. Um, that ethical dimension of the work, I had not really, I have to say, fully occurred to me until I sat down and talked with them. So I think in a lot of ways, they did influence the book in quite fundamental ways. It's hard to know if that's a conclusion I would have come to in the process of writing, but certainly it was really jump-started by talking to these interpreters. And then your second question of what I would ask them if I were to interview them today. I mean, I think something that I didn't talk to them about, but which I'm interested in in general, was what do you do about the thing that cannot be said in another language? And I mean, there are things that can't be said in another language. And what do you do in that moment, in that moment where you need to almost improvise and work around it very rapidly? You know, how do you jump over that gap, so to speak? And then I'm also, you know, I think I'm interested in knowing how much they feel they understand of the larger narrative that's being created and the kind of larger apparatus of the law. You know, if they feel as if they have this kind of big picture, you know, bird's eye view of what's happening, or if they feel themselves to be much more entrenched within the texture of the language itself. Also, because these trials are so long, you know, they're years long. And I think it's a really different, when you talk about slow time, it's a really different experience of narrative. And that's, you know, it's not necessarily something that would be useful for the writing of the book. But just, I'm just curious, you know, what is it like for them to experience this narrative that unfolds very, very slowly? You know, I sat in on a trial of Anlohon Bagbo from Cote d'Ivoire. I sat in on about a week or so of that trial, and it's six hours a day. I think it's six hours. Maybe it's four hours. Maybe it's two and two. Maybe it's four hours. But, you know, it's a longish period of time, and the narrative unfolds so slowly. You know, it's, it's very, very slow. 
it takes a lot of labor to kind of be able to simultaneously be very up close to the story that's being told and then to zoom out and create the context for understanding the larger story that's taking place. So I suppose I'd be interested to hear in how they negotiate that. I would too. I mean, I'm sure by even asking them these questions at all gives them a little bit of their humanity back versus just them sort of acting as a vessel. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I've never had to sit in their position, although I do feel a little bit more empathetic or in tune to what they'd have to endure. Yeah. When I started writing the book, I think I did think of the narrator almost as an empty vessel or a point of transmission, you know, a kind of something that language passes through. But the further I progressed into the book and the more I thought about it, I realized that there's no way that that language passes through you without leaving a trace. And conversely, there's no way that you don't impact and shape that language as you speak it, you know, as it moves through you. So I think understanding that it became quite clear to me that there was a real psychological effect for doing this work and the kind of public assumption, the kind of almost dehumanizing of this work really goes counter to the lived experience of it. And while we're on the subject of asking questions and kind of getting to the core of this work or just the work that drives people in general. Is there a question that you hope people start asking you more often? I've been feeling really lucky. I feel like I've had so many interesting questions and conversations with questions that I haven't been asked before. Like, I don't think anything that you've asked me today is something that I've been asked before. And I think often, you know, when you have a book out, the worry is that you'll just be answering the same question over and over again. But I think I, I feel like I've been so lucky in that there's been such a range of questions that have really helped me better understand what I've made. I mean, this is one of those experiences, you know, people say that a book is in the relationship between the reader and the writer. And I've really felt that with this book in particular, I think, because I've had the opportunity to talk to so many people who have had very different responses to it and have helped me understand better how things were working. I mean, you've done that today. You've completely show me things about the book that I hadn't thought about or hadn't really seen. So in that sense, there isn't a kind of reorienting of the narrative around the book that I feel needs to be done. I feel like I've been very lucky. So happy to hear that. I mean, my goal with slow stories is to try to not add any more clutter to the internet. Yes. <laughs> and I have so many other questions and things that we could probably speak about. But for the purposes of this interview, I'd actually love to close things out by having you read one more passage from Intimacies. Sure. The first time you listen to an interpreter speaking, their voice might sound cold and precise and completely without inflection. But the longer you listen, the more variation you would hear. If a joke was made, it was the interpreter's job to communicate the humor or attempt at humor. Similarly, when something was said ironically, it was important to indicate that the words were not to be taken at face value. Linguistic accuracy was not enough. Interpretation was a matter of great subtlety, a word that had many contexts. For example, it is often said that an actor interprets a role, or a musician a piece of music. There was a certain level of tension that was intrinsic to the court and its activities, a contradiction between the intimate nature of pain and the public arena in which it had to be exhibited. A trial was a complex calculus of performance in which we were all involved and from which none of us could be entirely exempt. It was a job of the interpreter not simply to state or perform, but to repeat the unspeakable. Perhaps that was a real anxiety within the court and among the interpreters. The fact that our daily activity hinged on the repeated description, description, elaboration, and delineation of matters that were outside, generally subject to euphemism and elision.
That was Katie Kitamura, author of Intimacies. You can purchase Intimacies anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. You can also follow Katie on social at underscore Katie Kitamura. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll be back in early 2022.